if the bull market has ended and we're now in a bear market, I think that is the absolute best time to get interested in Bitcoin. The people who get involved in Bitcoin during a bear market are the people who do by far the best from their investment and, and also because they're the ones who have the greatest conviction. They're the ones who uh, don't have paper hands, who get shaken out really easily. So in my experience watching Bitcoin for over a decade, it's those people who got interested in Bitcoin during a bear market, you know, started going down the rabbit hole, started accumulating, who did by far the best. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hello, folks, and welcome into the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Man, oh man, do we have a special episode for you today. Josh and myself, Dan, had the privilege of being joined by Vijay Boyapati. If you've been studying Bitcoin for more than 15 seconds, you know of Vijay. In 2018, he authored what is quite possibly the most famous Bitcoin article ever written, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, and he has recently released a book based on this article with the same title. Vijay graced the main stage at the Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami, and he's appeared on practically every major Bitcoin podcast in existence. Prior to his meteoric rise as a Bitcoin thought leader, Vijay was an engineer at Google. He is deeply passionate about Bitcoin, decentralization, and Austrian economics. Boyapati's knowledge surrounding Bitcoin is incredibly comprehensive, yet he also possesses a unique and special ability to synthesize those complex ideas for the everyday person. In this discussion, we cover topics such as, can the economy survive with a fixed money supply? Why portability and self-custody of Bitcoin are so incredibly important? Nation-state adoption of Bitcoin. Is it possible for Bitcoin to be regulated out of existence? Maintaining your Bitcoin virginity, avoiding altcoin traps, and much, much more. A link to VJ's work is included in the show notes, and you can follow VJ on Twitter at real underscore VJ. You can follow us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. Enjoy the episode. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Vijay Boyapati, welcome to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Josh, and thanks, and I'm really uh, excited to be on your podcast with you. Yeah, we were just saying uh, before getting going, you've heard this uh, a time or two, but your your work has really influenced the two of us. Um, it was instrumental in both of our journeys, and uh, certainly we'll link the bullish case for Bitcoin down in the show notes. If you've been in the space for more than five minutes, you've heard of this article. Just a phenomenally succinct and well done piece that that really influenced our our path. So we we appreciate you and the work you're doing in the Bitcoin space. Joel, thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Now, I think what then listening to you and and reading your your work, what stands out to me about your skill set is you have this incredibly unique gift for synthesizing complicated themes and ideas. You can go as deep as anyone I've heard, but you can bring it back to the surface. And I know you get asked this on virtually every show, but if you don't mind, explain for our audience uh, why Bitcoin is important in your mind and why you believe it'll continue to accrue value 
for decades to come? Give us just sort of your thousand foot view on Bitcoin. Well, Bitcoin, I think a good place to start is really what is Bitcoin? And I like to describe it as a new form of money. It's it, it's a new form of money that exists on the internet. Uh, and, and money is uh, a special good in any economy, any developed economy. Money acts as the foundation for all trade and savings. If you don't have money, then people don't have the ability to trade with each other very easily. You, you sort of revert back to a barter-based society, which is very primitive. Uh, so it really is a, a foundational change to upgrade or improve the, the monetary system. And I think if you, if you compare Bitcoin to other forms of money and you look at the attributes that make for a good money, Bitcoin is really far superior to anything that's ever existed. Um, and, and I think because it because money acts as the foundation for all trade and savings, an upgrade would have a profound effect on society. So that's, you know, my interest and my motivation in Bitcoin is this transformative effect it would have if it become became widely adopted. Uh, it would make trade more efficient. It would make saving much uh, easier and would give people the freedom to save without the, the fear of having their money debased through inflation or confiscated. You know, we, we are kind of privileged living in the United States in one of the greatest nations in history we we have a lot of freedom but there are a lot of countries around the world where people fear for their savings and they're unsure whether they can keep their savings into the future because of their government uh so bitcoin gives a lot more power back to the individual um and it and it makes trade uh uh, much freer and removes a lot of friction. So with Bitcoin, I can send value across the world to someone on the other side of the world without anyone standing in between me and that person uh, as easily as I can send an email. And I can send unlimited amounts without anyone's permission, which is incredibly powerful. This is this has literally never been possible in the history of the world. Mm. Uh, and it's sort of just today to give you an example of why that's important, uh, I went on a trip, a, a family trip with my wife, with some friends of ours and our friends paid for all the accommodation and food. And we, you know, obviously said we'd pay them back, but, you know, using traditional payment services uh, like the banking system or PayPal, there's a limit on how much money you can send someone. It's, it's actually pretty pathetic. It's like $2,000 <laughs> and uh, we need to send more than that. With, with Bitcoin, there's no limit. I don't, I don't need to ask a bank's permission if I need to send someone $5,000 or $10,000 uh, or if they're in a place where it's hard to get the money because there is no banking infrastructure, uh, I can do that. And that's a, that's a really uh, a powerful, transformative change to the world, something that hasn't been possible before. Vijay, you mentioned that you know, sending Bitcoin is kind of like sending email or it's just an instant digital good that can get sent anywhere instantly. Can you, I, I've heard you tell the story about your father having to move some of his wealth from, I think it was Australia back to India. And he moved a significant amount of gold. If I don't, if I remember correctly, can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, and just about how Bitcoin could have made that whole transfer much more seamless and safe for everybody involved. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so when I was a teenager, my mom got sick and um, thankfully she recovered. But at the time, my dad was really concerned about 
my mom and how he would raise his two children. Um, and he wanted to go back to India where he had grown up and where he had his family. Uh, and he had, you know, a bunch of assets that he had accumulated in Australia, but there was no easy way to transfer that to India. India had a very primitive, primitive banking system at the time. This was like the early nineties. And so he thought, well, how am I going to get my savings over to India? What he did was he sold his assets in Australia and he uh, bought gold and he, he carried, he literally carried his savings in a bag, a bag of gold to India uh, so that he could get his savings over, over to India. And I, I really remember how stressful that was for my dad or how stressful it would be for anyone to have all of your life savings uh, in a bag and go through customs, uh, not just in Australia, but in India where the, you know, there's a lot of corruption in India. I can't imagine. And, and so it's a, it's a very risky, scary, stressful experience to do something like that. Uh, so I was already primed to understand one of the, the big value propositions of Bitcoin that you can easily transfer wealth uh, digitally across the world uh, in a secure way uh, without having to worry about going through customs or anything like that or without having to declare it when you go through an airport. Uh, so, I, you know, having that experience as a kid, I I was kind of, I understood almost immediately like, oh, there's something valuable here to this Bitcoin thing. Let me try and figure out really what, what this is about. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if you've, if you, become a Bitcoiner, I'm sure some of your listeners are Bitcoiners, and, and you've traveled and you, you keep custody of your own Bitcoin and you have the private keys. If you've ever traveled across a border and you know that you have your Bitcoin with you, that's an incredibly powerful feeling. <laughs> no one else needs to know. You could cross a border with, you know, $100,000 or a million dollars or $10 million or whatever number it is. Like yeah. Michael Saylor, for instance, could cross a border with a billion dollars Twelve words, and right? He doesn't need to fill out any any forms saying, you know, how much money do you have in your pocket? No one needs to know. You can carry your wealth with you uh, without any kind of harassment or, or um, uh, you know, corrupt authorities looking in your pockets. And that's such a powerful feeling. And and I encourage people if they 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 uh, have Bitcoin or if they don't have Bitcoin to try this, get some savings, maybe a thousand or a few thousand dollars. And go to another country and and feel the power of knowing mm. that you have your savings with you and you can use your savings without asking anyone for their permission. True sovereignty. Yeah, I, I, th we were talking before we started recording VJ, and we were just saying that one of the endlessly fascinating but also unfortunate parts of Bitcoin is it just takes a long time to grok this thing to wrap your head around it. And and two characteristics or principles we've just briefly brushed on. One of which was just the incredible amount of friction that exists in our current monetary system. And then secondarily, this idea of bearer assets that you actually possess yourself. These are two unbelievably important themes that very few people even understand the implications of. And when, even if you just say the sentence, Bitcoin may present a solution to these problems, that's an incredible statement that has far reaching or potentially far reaching effects. But it's just hard to get the average individual to understand the power of those two things, reducing friction, which Bitcoin does 
just beautifully, and then also allowing you to actually have sovereignty over your money as a digital bearer asset. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, we live in the West, so we I think we take for granted that um, the monetary system seems to work. It generally seems to work, and we when we keep uh, some of our savings in either dollars or pounds or or what whatever it is that that they don't lose value that quickly but that's not true in the rest of the world and certainly the nations uh the western nations are not immune to bad uh monetary policy or, or government failure so i i think you know when you speak to people in places like zimbabwe or venezuela or argentina it doesn't take as much convincing because they've they've already experienced what uh, poor monetary policy looks like and how mm. devastating it can be. Yeah, you know, I have a I have a friend who's Argentinian and he he told me this story which I thought was absolutely fascinating. When he was a kid, you'd go to the grocery store and there would be a person putting prices on all of the goods at the grocery store. And when they got to the end of the aisles, they would start back at the beginning and have to start updating immediately because prices were rising so quickly that if the grocery store didn't update their prices, they would lose uh, value because of the inflation of their their uh, money, uh, and and so people in places like that really understand how bad it is to to have a, a broken monetary system because when you get paid, you don't want to keep the money for any length of time because it loses value so quickly. Now it. The U.S. dollar loses value too. It just happens slowly enough that, that most people don't understand or don't pay attention, and it takes a little bit more time to explain to people, "Hey, this is actually bad for you. This is bad for your savings, and it means that you need to find a place for your savings that is is safe. Because if you keep your savings in dollars over you know over a number of years, the value of those dollars will drop, and you you'll." your savings will be melting away like an ice cube on a, on a hot summer day. So it does take more time, but, uh, you know, given, given the unprecedented uh, policies of Western governments over the last few years, printing trillions and trillions of dollars, I, th I don't think that's going to end well. And I think people in these Western countries are going to get more familiarity with why, things like inflation are, are so bad and, and so destructive to people's lives and to their savings. BJ, <clears throat> I'm glad you brought up the hyperinflation theme. I was, I read the bullish case again last night preparing for this and there was an excerpt from it. I want to read to you. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but when a sovereign money hyperinflates, its value first collapses against the most liquid goods in the society, such as gold or foreign money like supply. A hyperinflating money collapses against real goods such as real estate and commodities. It's interesting. I mean, you wrote that in 2018, and we're kind of watching that play out, as far as I can tell, in the last year in the U.S. We're watching real estate prices rise at a massive clip. We, we watched commodities move similarly, like lumber and copper and all of the constituent things that we need in the economy. Do you see that? as a potential red flag for maybe the beginnings of something in that of that nature or do you think that that's maybe just a smaller microcosm that could kind of be uh could Tran transitory transitory yeah. exactly as the fed says uh i i mean i think i think it's certainly early warning signs that we need to pay attention to 
that the Fed could lose control over monetary policy. I think the risk of large-scale inflation in the US is the greatest it's been in a decade. I actually wrote an article um, back in 2010 arguing that we weren't going to see inflation but a period of deflation when the Fed uh, entered into quantitative easing. And the, the, the monetary environment now is actually quite a lot different to quantitative easing. In a way, you can think of quantitative easing as creating a lot of money, but burying it under the ground. So it doesn't really affect prices mm, that much. Yeah. But, but, but what, we've seen, what we've seen today is much more inflationary because the, the Fed has basically done a helicopter drop of money because they've created uh, new money that's been given to people directly through these stimulus checks. And so there's so much more money actually having an effect on the economy and sloshing around in the economy that it's it really is pushing prices up very quickly. And, and like you say, um, real estate is a is a good uh, sort of measure of this. And if you're like a, a you know a new married couple and you're looking to buy a house and you've been looking for the last couple of years, the value of your dollars has dropped so dramatically. Your ability to mm. purchase real estate has dropped so dramatically that you can't help but notice it. Uh, so, you know, people may not understand this in a general sense, but they can understand it in specific cases. And, and of course, like if you're a retiree and you have a, a pension, a fixed pension, you're probably going to the grocery store thinking, wow, I can't buy as much anymore. I can't buy as much uh, uh, meat. Uh, milk is more expensive. Bread is more expensive. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're starting to notice because the rate of inflation is definitely picking up. And the, they just reported uh, the the monthly inflation number. And if you annualize it, it would get you to an annual rate of inflation of 11%. Now, whether that's a, a little bit of an overestimate because this month happened to be bad, we don't know. But definitely the inflation has picked up a lot more in the last couple of years and to the point where people are beginning to notice and say, well, my money isn't going as far anymore. It's, it's, I think what's fascinating for us is watching this play out firsthand in the world we live in. We're obviously in a middle-class environment with, you know, many of our peers are also firefighter paramedics. And there is a, amongst younger group that doesn't own a home, there is just like this waiting game. Like, I can't afford to buy the house I was interested in a couple of years a couple of years ago, so I'm waiting. But I mean, by, I I feel, and obviously we're looking at a small sample size in terms of this is we're looking at one year post COVID. But I don't think there's another way to frame that other than to say buying power is going down, and that's part of the reason we're so passionate about this. Like we embarked on this podcast because we're we want to disseminate information to our peers to help people protect their wealth and and their hard work. And there's just not that many solutions out there. And when you get exposed to Bitcoin, it's hard to get unexposed. It's something you can't unsee once you see it. Yeah. And, you know, I think that you, you bring up something that's important. There's a moral aspect to this as well. Uh, inflation is really a very insidious form of taxation. It's taking your uh, the fruits of your labor, your savings away from you without really asking your permission. Uh, you know, whatever you think about the role of government, whether it should be bigger or smaller, I think taxation is just generally much more honest than inflation. Because when you tax a population, you have to go into their pocket and take the money directly and they can see the money being taken away. 
and you know governments have to justify and explain well we want we need the money for this or that with inflation they're taking your savings without asking and without most people even understanding what's happening and, and i really think that's an immoral way of uh, governments behaving uh, so I, I'm in complete agreement with you. I think it's it's important to let people know and to explain this because uh, the fruits of your labor are really important, right? You put your hard work in and, and you should get to keep that and for the benefit of your family and the people you care about and having that taken away and generally having that taken away and benefiting, uh, you know, very, very powerful special interests like banks and insurance companies and, and the the institutions that are closest to government have the most power uh, influencing government. That's incredibly immoral to me. So that's another one of the reasons why I'm, I'm very passionate about Bitcoin is that it, it puts power back in the hands of people who save and earn their money and, and want to keep their savings safe. Yeah, this I've heard you explore that idea before. This whole taxation is honest, inflation is dishonest. I actually heard... Let's see, it was a com- it was Jeff Booth, Greg Foss, and I think John Vallis were on. And Booth said, I just looked it up because I tweeted it out. He said, I want, and this hit home for us. He said, I want a firefighter in my city, and I'm happy to pay taxes to do that. I just don't want politicians to lie to me. And then I followed up and said, We firemen agree. Funding essential government services via transparent taxation is fair. Arbitrary unlimited inflation is not. And this is just another misunderstanding for a lot of folks in terms of digesting exactly what's happening when this amount of money gets inserted. I mean, it is a shadow tax and it's not something we've agreed to. Right. Absolutely. And it's just, I I think it's, uh, it's unfair for the weakest people in society who don't know what's happening and, uh, and having their savings transferred uh, away and going to the people who get get the newly inflated money first is just so unjust, and so it is for me a moral issue. Um, so a question I'm really interested in hearing your answer to VJ. Uh, I'm I've heard a lot of Keynesian economics uh, and uh, economists go on about how it'd be very difficult to run an economy on a fixed supply of money. So as someone who we know is deeply passionate about and knowledgeable, knowledgeable regarding Austrian economics, how would you respond to that argument that we need to have an unlimited money supply or some inflation to keep everything moving and expanding versus uh, Bitcoin, which is a fixed supply that is obviously infinitely divisible at some point in the future? But how would you approach answering that question? Mm, good question. Well, well, there's a, there's a really big fallacy in this uh, Keynesian argument that if you had a fixed money supply, that uh, the value of the money will go up over time because it's fixed and, you know, there'd be production of new goods over time. So because your money uh, is more valuable, you're you're just going to decide not to spend it because you can just wait and you can get more in the future. And we know this is completely uh, false because we can already see pockets of the economy which is so productive that prices do fall very, very rapidly. Mm, So technology is an example of this. So you consider uh, something like an iPhone. Now, I suspect that whatever phone you have, you've gotten a new one in the last few years. You probably haven't waited like a decade or 15 years just because you could 
wait more and get a better phone. So the fallacy is that people will, will not exchange their money because they can wait longer. But if the benefit of uh, exchanging your money is so great to you and your lifestyle, you will exchange it. That's just a fact. Uh, what all it will do is it'll marginally shift the propensity to spend towards the propensity to save. Right. Because everyone... it doesn't, elim- doesn't eliminate the desire to spend. It just shifts it slightly. And I actually think that's a great thing. It's beneficial for people to save because savings is what allows for investment. It's the saving of, of assets that can be deployed later in investments that increases the productivity of any economy. Now, the fact that we have money kind of confuses people. They don't understand what this means. But if you if you think of a sort of simple example, uh, and Austrian economists often like to use the example of, of Robinson Crusoe on an island where there is no money, we can understand what, what is savings. Savings is, uh, let's say Robinson, Robinson Crusoe is a fisherman and uh, what he does is he defers some of his consumption. He doesn't eat all of the fish that he catches and he puts some on the side. Uh, maybe he smokes it so he can uh, eat it later. And so he saves and he puts away some of the present consumption for the future. And in the future, what he can do is he can use that as a way of investing his time into making his ability to fish uh, improve. So he can spend a few days uh building a fishing net, for instance, because he can rely on the savings that he's accumulated in the fish that he's put away. Now, if you think about it in sort of the wider context of the economy, if you have more people savings, saving, that gives you a greater ability to invest and a greater in, uh, ability to increase the productivity of the economy, which is the source of all wealth is uh, the increase in production. So, you know, I think Keynesians are completely mistaken because if you have a money which is deflationary, it shifts the tendency away from spending and consumption to savings, which in the long term is really great for increasing the productivity of an economy. That was a great explanation. And it also made me, it came, what came to mind was it, it also creates a more robust economy overall, because when you've got a large amount of people saving who can go without for a period of time, if they need to, the whole thing doesn't just sit on a house of cards that could collapse at any time. The whole the whole thing is sustainable for a longer period of time with uh, with any inter- intermediate problems here and there. Whereas what we have yeah, now, what we have now is it, it's unsustainable. If if any part of this whole chain breaks, it's all it's all done instantly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think an important thing that you you bring up is that it's not built on this huge debt bubble, uh, and the problem with having an economy that's built on credit is that one of the tendencies is that people start using that credit for consumption as well. Yeah. And uh, so, so what happens is that you get a huge part of the economy devoted to people just consuming. And, and the example of this in, in the last decade or so was the uh, financial crisis uh, where people were using uh, debt to buy houses and remodel their houses and put in granite countertops and just things which are just consumption so that they could appear to be wealthy and didn't at all improve the economy, didn't Im- improve the productivity of the, of the economy, didn't in, uh, involve new factories 
or, or production of new services or research or any of those things. And that's one of the, the dangers of credit is that it makes it easy for people to consume and you get mm. into a consumerist society. And like you say, those are, those are much more fragile and, and prone to collapses because eventually, you know, when, when you get this huge bubble, it, it has to collapse because you can't have everyone in the economy laying granite countertop. That's just not a productive use of human capital. Yeah. And, it, and just you, to individual wise, I mean, there's so many folks completely broke walking around living middle upper class lifestyles. And we live in a society that allows for that. And unfortunately, that rotten turkey eventually comes back to roost. And you can get away with being over leveraged for years and decades at a time, but eventually it catches up to you or your offspring, one of the two. So yeah, it, it's on a macro level, all the way down to the individual level, it can be extremely harmful. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the danger I see, just a quick comment on that. The danger I see is that every time these bubbles begin to pop and, you know, the economy gets back to a state of being healthy uh, and, and not so over leveraged, the Fed steps in and says, we're not going to allow this to happen. So our economy is becoming more and more leveraged. And I, I really worry we're going to get to a point where the whole house of cards collapses in one go and it'll be disorderly and it'll, it'll, you know, result in social unrest. Yeah. Um, that that's, that's what concerns me the most, because if you keep inflating this bubble, it just means that you're, you're delaying this, this major correction that's going to come down the line. Do you see any way that, do you see any way that this could happen orderly and we could transition to something like Bitcoin or Bitcoin itself? Yeah, VJ, we actually spoke with Greg Foss two days ago and he was, I think this was out of the goodness of his heart, but he was saying he hopes that two parallel systems can exist together, the Bitcoin system and the fiat system, and that the entire house doesn't get torn down, but we can remodel room by room. What's the future you envision? Like Josh just asked, do you think that's even feasible? What, what do you think is likely to play out in, we're in our thirties, like let's say in our lifetime? You know, I think that the debt bubble that's been built up in the Western world is so massive that it's, it's really hard to, you know, unwind that or, or move to something else uh, without a collapse because it's just so unstable uh, it, but, but this is an open question and I, you know, I can't pretend to know what the answer to this is. We're, we're learning about what a transition to a new monetary system will look like because we're living through it and mm. it's happening so quickly. Uh, I, I am encouraged looking at the developments in El Salvador to see that they are running a, a parallel, uh, monetary system. They're running a Bitcoin standard as well as the dollar standard in their country. And I think that's a, a good template for how this might work. And if it does work, then that that's really encouraging, right? That it, it is actually possible. Um, certainly, if if governments don't uh, allow this kind of thing, if they try and suppress Bitcoin and try to grow their debt bubble in an unlimited way, as as they have been, then it could be very disorderly because then people are going to run to Bitcoin in, in desperation because there, there is no other alternative. Uh, the way of getting ahead of it is to do what El Salvador has done and say, let's just legalize this and let people use it and let them get the benefit of keeping their savings in this uh, new form of money. And also the benefit of being able to receive Bitcoin from uh, you know friends and family overseas, because that's a big deal to 
uh, Latin American countries is remittances, people moving to America and sending some of their savings back to their family. Uh, and, and a lot of these folks in Latin America lose a huge chunk of that money to these money services businesses, which take you know 30 to 50%. But with Bitcoin, now they can have that money go back to their family and get the vast bulk of that money uh, to, to, to them. So yeah, l- let's see. I, I, my tendency would be to think that given how big the bubble is, it's going to be very hard for it to unwind in an orderly fashion. Uh, but I, I do have like a little bit of hope seeing the example of uh, what's happening in Latin America right now. This is a, along a similar vein um, but how do you think that that this transition process impacts the valuation of Bitcoin? I know you're not here to say it's going to trade at this on X date, but on the spectrum of the things worthless all the way to re- world reserve currency, what do you think is a, a likely landing spot in our lifetime and, and sort of how it would get there? Uh, so, you know, I, I have pretty high confidence in the, you know, short to medium term that, that Bitcoin could overtake gold in its market capitalization, because I think gold is Bitcoin's closest cousin as a, as a monetary good. They both have the the properties that make for really good money, except that Bitcoin is superior to gold along every one of the attributes. So for instance, one of the attributes that makes for good money is portability. Bitcoin is just head and shoulders above gold as much. And we, you know, we talked about the story of my dad taking gold to India. Um, and another attribute that Bitcoin is superior to gold is uh, scarcity. Bitcoin, uh, sorry, gold is relatively scarce because it's hard to produce, but the supply of gold does increase every year. It goes up by, you know, 2% per year, but Bitcoin has ultimate scarcity. There'll never be more than 21 million Bitcoins. Uh, so I have fairly high confidence. I'm thinking in in sort of the time frame of five to ten years that Bitcoin, Bitcoin will achieve and surpass gold's market capitalization, which would give you a price target on Bitcoin uh, to get to the same market capitalization of gold. It would have to have a, a price of about five hundred thousand per Bitcoin. Beyond that. Uh, I think it, it's still an open question whether Bitcoin becomes uh, the global reserve currency. Uh, and whether more and more countries adopt it as a as a reserve currency and add it to their reserves, their their foreign currency reserves. Um, so I I personally believe that will happen, but I think that's a multi-decade process, and you know it's something that will benefit my kids and my grandkids. But I you know I think some people have timelines where that's going to happen over the next three or four years, and I I think that's uh, a little too optimistic. Yeah. BJ, in your uh, bullish case for Bitcoin, you talk about Gartner hype cycles and uh, how new technologies go through these hype cycles. There's this technological trigger, and then a bunch of people jump on board and they hype this thing to the moon. Like we've seen in Bitcoin maybe five times now. It goes from, like this recent time, it went from 3,000 to 65,000. And then the peak of this is the inflated expectations when then it crashes back down to the trough of disillusionment and then the slope of enlightenment and then the plateau of productivity. So you did mention that you thought the final, the final uh, adoption phase, the final Gartner cycle in Bitcoin would be when nation states adopt Bitcoin. Do you see what's going on in El Salvador as that final adoption phase? But 
maybe happening on a, a much slower process than obviously, like you said, you're not expecting this to happen in the next five years or so. But do you think that's the first inkling of this or do you think this is maybe just like an off shot, you know, shot in the pan kind of situation? Yeah, I think it, it may be a little bit of an anomaly. And I was certainly very surprised um, that this happened in this cycle. I didn't expect it to happen for a couple more cycles. Um, it's not what I would call full adoption because I think for it to be full adoption, El Salvador would have to meaningfully add it to their foreign currency reserves. And I don't think that's what they're doing. They're, they're making it legal tender, which is really great for the people in El Salvador. They can use Bitcoin without the friction of having to pay taxes when they, uh, when they buy and sell things. Uh, but in each cycle, you could have, like, you can define, say, the first cycle as being um, the computer scientists and cryptographers that, you know, understood enough about what Bitcoin was to be interested in it. And uh, you could define the next cycle as the people who are ideologically aligned with Bitcoin libertarians coming in. And then maybe the next cycle would be retail investors. But in each cycle, you, you can have people who really belong in the cycle after mm, who are just yeah. early. So, so for instance, like maybe institutional adoption, like real institutional adoption won't happen this cycle. It will happen next cycle. And people like Michael Saylor are just the, the tip of the spear. They're the earliest people who belong in the next cycle coming in. And the, the same thing could be true with El Salvador. Um, I think it, El Salvador, you know, coming in in the, in this cycle is certainly going to make it easier for other nation states to come in in the next cycle. And, and one of the concepts I talked I've talked about on Twitter is this idea of touch points. And this is more for individuals, but the number of times a person has to hear about uh, Bitcoin before they become interested in learning about it or doing anything about it, uh, and for different people that may be you know a different number of touch points. Uh, so for me, it was, you know, two of my really close friends who I really trust kept telling me about Bitcoin and kept telling me that I needed to look into it. And eventually I did. Um, but first, you know, someone like my, my dad, it might take 20 or 30 different people telling him that he needs to look into it before he actually goes and does it. I think the same thing is true probably for uh, nation states and, and the political leaders in these nation states. Uh, it, it may take a few countries jumping on board Bitcoin and and getting the benefits of having a Bitcoin standard for other countries to say, yeah, well, actually, this looks like it works. Maybe we should do it as well. So I think that's one of the benefits of El Salvador. Uh, and now it looks like Paraguay as well is interested in in following a similar path. I think if they have a success where their people see the value of their savings go up, the savings that they have in Bitcoin, and they see like much that see that they're paying much less in fees to uh, think companies like Western Union. I think other countries in Latin America will fall like dominoes and say, we should be doing this as well. And once you get a critical mass, then other nations will follow very quickly. So it it is surprising to me that uh, El Salvador happened this cycle, uh, but I think it's really setting setting the stage for the next cycle when I think we'll see uh, a lot more of this. Uh, in your opinion, do you think that this current bull market is over at 65,000 or do you get the feeling that this is kind of like 2013 
when we saw uh, a double top where it sat stagnant for six months in between? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that's completely an open question. I could give you an answer, you know, try to be a hype man and say we're definitely going higher. <laughs> we want to hear hype. As, yeah, Willie Wu, I, <laughs> as Willie Wu says, Bitcoin bull porn. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so it, it feels good, right, to say that. But I, I have to be honest, maybe it is the top. And, yeah. and that's okay if it is. Maybe yep. this bull cycle uh, has ended and maybe we're going to find a plateau somewhere in the 30,000 area. And maybe we sit here for a prolonged period of time before we set the base for the next run and maybe the next one goes to 150,000 or, or something like that. And maybe that doesn't happen for another year or maybe two years. I, I don't worry about these things so much because my time horizon is, you know, quite long. It's, it's in the order of a decade or, or multiple decades because I see this as a long-term project, which in the time span of a few decades is going to be incredibly valuable. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the, the greatest in, investment opportunities of all time. So I'm kind of patient and I I don't worry that maybe maybe the bull market is over. I've been through a bunch of bull markets and a bunch of bear markets. If this is a bear market, fine. It it actually to me is way less painful than the 2013 bear market. (laughs) That was was incredibly painful because there was a sense uh, that maybe Bitcoin really was dead, that, you know, there was a few prominent people who just gave up on Bitcoin and said, I'm I'm out. I don't think this can work. Uh, so, you know, my confidence was tested a lot more in, in 2013 and 2014 than it is now. I, I feel incredibly bullish about Bitcoin because I think the fundamentals are so good, but then, you know, Bitcoin goes through these cycles and people get really exuberant and, and you get this uh, climax in price and then you have a crash and then you have sort of this plateau phase and that's how these cycles have played out. So maybe that's what we've seen. And that's that's okay, uh, at least with me. So I, I can't give you a definitive answer and, and say uh, the, the bull market's going to keep going. Perhaps it could. It could be like 2013 when there's a pause. But then again, it, it might not. So I would say if it if it if the bull market has ended and we're now in a bear market, I think that is the absolute best time to get interested in Bitcoin. The people who get involved in Bitcoin during a bear market are the people who do by far the best from their investment. And and also because they're the ones who have the greatest conviction. They're the ones who uh, don't have paper hands who get shaken out really easily. So in my experience watching Bitcoin for over a decade, it's those people who got interested in Bitcoin during a bear market you know, started going down the rabbit hole, started accumulating, who did by far the best. VJ, we just need you to say it's going to a million so we can say you said yeah, that. So on we here. can just put it on YouTube. <laughs> no, seriously. Go to the moon. V- VJ, to the moon. I, I don't think we can express how much we appreciate some of the healthy cautions you just included. Like we couldn't, you said earlier, it, it takes new, multiple touch points for people to, to develop conviction. And it just, Unfortunately or unfortunately, it takes time. You've been in way longer than the two of us, but we've been in since 2017 and we feel the same way. Like there's there's a sense of peace when you understand the fundamentals and you have the foundation of your conviction built on real stuff. And there's no better time to develop that than when the hype is over. And there, there could be some maybe unfortunate truth to the fact that if you just got shaken out in the last couple months, you may not have been ready to ride this beast. 
it just it, it may not you may as as your book talks you know you may not be ready to ride the bull just yet you know so um we are deeply passionate about steel manning our arguments weighing the other side and just being intellectually honest and along this vein it's a tough question but what actual concerns do you have about the bitcoin protocol and network like if as you play devil's advocate and take the counter argument side what what could potentially or does currently concern you about bitcoin i think you know in the early days the biggest risk was protocol risk whether satoshi had actually designed something that worked uh and over the years i think you know there's, there's been a lot of incredibly bright people who've tried to to break the protocol and and to hack the network but we've come to understand that it's it's, it's a very well designed elegantly designed system um I think the biggest risk today is nation state attack, whether nation states recognize Bitcoin as a threat to their monetary policy and whether they act on it. And to me, that comes down to whether Bitcoin gets enough political capture that uh, a nation state attack is essentially impossible. Uh, the example I, I usually give to people is is the, the ride sharing company Uber. Uh, which had this strategy of going into cities and launching their service without asking anyone's permission. Love and it. they would really upset the taxi lobby in, in all over the world. The taxi lobbies hated Uber because it was disrupting their business. And the taxi lobby would go to the local city government and say, you need to regulate this business or shut it down. And by the time the local city government got around to doing anything about it, Uber had such a strong constituency of its users who are passionate about using it and the people who uh, made their money through Uber, the, the drivers. Uh, so it would became very, very difficult for city governments to shut it down because of that constituency. And the same thing is happening with Bitcoin. The, the number of people who have savings in Bitcoin is growing uh, very rapidly over time. And the number of businesses that are built around Bitcoin uh, is also growing. So people who depend on their livelihood on Bitcoin and now public companies which have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So this, this forms a natural constituency uh, which protects Bitcoin, at least in the democratic nations where, you know, politicians can't do whatever they like. They have to do what's popular. Bitcoin is still vulnerable, though, because it's still uh, at a fairly small amount of adoption in the United States and the world. Uh, I think over the next four to five years, that adoption will grow to the level where Bitcoin does become uh, politically, essentially po politically invulnerable, because shutting down Bitcoin would be like trying to shut down the 401k program. Uh, if you tried to take away people's retirement savings, you'd have uh, right, people riding in the streets. Now, Bitcoin's not quite there yet, um, but I, I'm optimistic it, it will get there. But that is the number one concern for me is whether nation states decide, hey, we need to shut this thing down. And I think we need to really uh, keep our eyes open and, and watch for this as a threat and, and not, you know, just believe Bitcoin is inevitable. We have to work to make it inevitable which is to explain to people why it's important and, and to especially to explain to people in power why it's important. And I'm really encouraged by the fact that we now have a United States senator who uh, is, is op an open advocate for Bitcoin and even owns Bitcoin. And she said that she one of her jobs is to go to the Senate 
and explain to her colleagues in the Senate why Bitcoin is important. And I, I'm really encouraged that we have a voice uh, in the Senate because a, a single senator has a lot of power in, in our system of government, yeah. uh, a lot more than a congressman. So it, it, that's a very exciting development and I think is going to be a great protective force for the, this sort of nascent uh, embryonic Bitcoin ecosystem. Yeah, and just for our audience, you're talking about Cynthia Loomis, correct? That's right, yes. Yeah, yeah VJ, luckily for us, governments are generally slow, dumb animals, and uh, I think this thing's going to outcompete them pretty, pretty handily. What are your thoughts on, do you have any altcoins at all that you would be a proponent of or that you have, you think have any utility that, that Bitcoin at some point on some other layer won't overtake or completely render useless? Are there other, do you own anything else besides Bitcoin is really what I'm trying to ask you. Yeah, I call myself a Bitcoin virgin. I've never lost my Bitcoin. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> phrase. Oh, uh, I, uh, I was a I, whore I, when I, I started. Yeah, <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, we, very, we, we reclaimed our virginity, VJ. But yeah, we're, uh, we're, <laughs> we're born again Bitcoin I've, virgins. I've heard, I've heard that's medically possible. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure I've, it is these days. I, did, I, I didn't need to do that. I've always been a Bitcoin virgin, and I, I've never owned anything else. Uh, it, it's partly because. I mean, I, I just don't think any of these other altcoins has the immaculate conception of Bitcoin. Um, uh, most of them, in, in, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, most Fo of Foss them said VJ Foss the other day said he's not even sure this was invented by a human being. Along the along the direction <laughs> you're going, we actually got into talking about that with him. He's, he was, I think, he was dead serious too. Well, I mean, just from a moral point of view, it's just a great great development for humankind so you you know you could say there's some religious significance to it as well but uh i i just i don't i think in any market where there's a network effect it tends to be the most important attribute for any good or service that has that network effect and i think bitcoin has by far the dominant network effect in the cryptocurrency space uh and, and it's at such a scale now that i don't think any other uh, currency is going to be able to overtake it and to be honest i think i'm, I'm deeply skeptical most of these other currencies uh are just pump and dump scams they're created by someone to make money by like by mining the supply of their own coin and then dumping it on someone else whereas the, the creation of bitcoin is very different satoshi uh mined a bunch of the early bitcoin just to keep the network on and he's never ever moved any of his bitcoin he never benefited from those bitcoins that he mined so it really is a, a very different system uh there was no pre-mine there was no like uh, you know group of founders who gave themselves a bunch of the the supply and then dumped it on the public like ethereum they did that with ethereum um and if if another cryptocurrency was to outcompete bitcoin as I think Bitcoin is outcompeting gold, then it would need to outcompete Bitcoin on the attributes that make for good money. And when I look at the attributes of Bitcoin, I just don't see how that's possible. I don't see how you you can't get more scarce than a, a fixed supply, uh, and I don't see how you could be any more portable. Bitcoin's digital, so I don't see room for uh, another cryptocurrency to outcompete Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Because when when a new money comes about, it has to be massively superior to the incumbent to be able to outcompete it. Because the incumbent has a network effect. Fiat currencies, fiat currencies and gold already have their own network effects. 
Uh, so Bitcoin has to be massively superior to be able to outcompete those. I just don't see that there's any, uh, you know, massive comparative advantage in any of the altcoins. Most of them are outright scams. Uh, and, and there are some which have some technological attributes that are kind of interesting, but it, it's not those technological attributes that will help them win. It's the monetary attributes because these are all monetary goods competing against each other. So I don't own any of these others. I'm not interested in them. I don't, I, I'm, I'm in Bitcoin more for the, the mission of changing the world. And, uh, most of these other ones are, um, really not that they're, they're, they're trying to attack some very specific market uh, and say, you know, we're really good at doing transactions in this particular market. I, I didn't buy any of that. I think that's mostly just marketing uh, BS. I think these are going to be these are going to be great test nets for Bitcoin's continued improvement. I think. Yeah, if something interesting comes up, Bitcoin can certainly adopt it in its network. Um, Bitcoin, uh, the community of developers that work on Bitcoin are extremely conservative about. Uh, modifying Bitcoin. And I think that's a really good thing because we're talking about a foundation layer for savings and you don't want that to be constantly tinkered with. In, in fact, you want it to be essentially impossible to change right? because you want your savings to be safe. And that's another reason I think Bitcoin is really completely different to all these other uh, cryptocurrencies is that there's credibility to its monetary policy because it is extremely difficult, almost impossible to change Bitcoin. Whereas these other cryptocurrencies, you, you have a very small team that can turn it on or off or add whatever they want. Why would you trust the monetary policy of something that can be controlled by five or six people? Yeah. And this is something we're constantly harping on is just decentralization matters. You know, you, you talked about the remarkable characteristics of Bitcoin. You said, you know, scarcity and portability. Well, these characteristics are embodied and carried out by a decentralized network. And to expect that another coin or protocol is going to infringe on where Bitcoin's at in terms of decentralization is just hard for us to believe. I mean, what other protocol is going to have a couple pea-sized brained firemen like us running nodes in our house? It's just very unlikely. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that that really is the key to it, is that the decentralization is something that Bitcoin has and no other cryptocurrency has. And Bitcoin has already gone through these tests of its decentralization. Uh, so in 2017, there was this attempt to take over Bitcoin and change it in a way that would be beneficial to some of the companies working in the ecosystem. And they failed. No, and, and that was a great test to show that Bitcoin is invulnerable to attack, uh, especially against companies that are in the space that have a lot of influence. That That's not true for any other cryptocurrency. When Ethereum was tested, it immediately failed its test. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was, a, there was this uh, uh, smart contract, the DAO, um, which was an early smart contract that allowed people to do kind of a venture-backed fund using uh, Ethereum. And when they found out that it had a bug and a bunch of people lost money, they just unwound it. They rolled it back. Uh, so that that showed that Ethereum isn't immutable. It can be changed. If someone doesn't like something, if the group of developers says, we don't like these transactions, they can just unwind it. And that's no different to the current financial system. So what you know, what you what's the, the value there? I see no value in that. Um, so yeah, that's that's part of the reason why I'm Bitcoin only. VJ, could you tell us a little bit about your new book and tell some of our tens of listeners where they can buy it? 
This yeah, is so a huge I, I, reach for you, VJ. Our audience is just absolutely massive. Yeah, your so. book is just going to blow up after yeah. this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Um, so I, I, you know, updated my article and, and significantly expanded on it to to turn it into a book, and I launched it as a Kickstarter as a way of you know, selling directly to the people who would be interested in it. And the, the Kickstarter was fairly successful. It um, raised about $150,000. Uh, I'm working right now on getting those books shipped to the people who backed my Kickstarter. The Kickstarter has ended. Uh, you can find the book on pre-order on Amazon now, and it should be released mid-August. So if you want to get uh, an advanced order in, you can go to Amazon and, and put an order in. Awesome. Can we still get a signature on that book? Because I was looking at I was looking at the Kickstarter campaign like a week ago and I was like, damn, I missed I missed the opportunity to buy the uh, signed version. VJ, here's the deal. We're gonna we're gonna tell our listeners, order it through Amazon and then we'll give out your personal address. They'll <laughs> ship it to you. You'll sign it and then send it back to them. No, seriously, we oh, I was just gonna say I, I brought a bunch of copies to the conference in Miami and I signed a few hundred copies. And my hand almost fell off. It was pretty funny, but I, I still, I, I, I still have about another thousand copies to sign. So I have a lot of work ahead. You gotta of me. find someone to be able to fake yeah. your signature. You just VJ. gotta get a stamp made. You know, just yeah. stamp that signature on there. Um, we will, we will link your article. We'll link that. I'm assuming we can just find it on Amazon and people can pre-order it, right? Based yep. on what you just said. Yep. Very cool. Yep. And then, in terms of people getting in touch with your ideas and your content, where can people find you? The best place is on Twitter. I, I, you know, tweet about Bitcoin fairly frequently. Uh, my Twitter handle is real VJ. So R E A L underscore V I J A Y. And, uh, that's, that's the best place to, to find me. Uh, and also to message me as well. I, I generally try and respond to everyone who has a question about Bitcoin. Cause you know, I love talking about Bitcoin. Uh, we do too. And we hope that the next time you come on, we'll have hundreds of listeners for you to listen. Yeah, we'll go to, from tens to hundreds and then, I mean, probably millions. After the network that. effect that this podcast is garnering is yeah. makes Bitcoin blush. Write a textbook on Metcalf's law here as we ascend. <laughs> um, seriously, we know you're a busy man. Thank you for your time. Your ability, like we said at the top, to synthesize some of these complex ideas is uh, super fruitful for the types of individuals we're trying to target and help navigate this uh, super important technology and protocol. So thank you so much, BJ. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind, and our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.